Hi everyone, this is Mike DeBliss. This is part two of criminal tax liabilities and sentencing. In this podcast, I'm going to discuss the six steps for determining a sentence in federal court um, after a person has been convicted of a tax crime. I'm going to list them for you, and then um, I'll basically uh, go through each one individually. The first step is to determine the base offense level by reference to the tax loss number. And I realize that if uh, this sounds like gibberish, um, I will um, add a little bit of meat to the bone so that you understand what is meant by tax loss number and base offense level. Um, this is kind of a review um, after uh, a, a review of what we discussed in part one. In step two, um, it's necessary to adjust the offense level in light of specific offense characteristics. Then when we get to step three, uh, we're going to calculate the sentence, uh, which I'll show you how to do. In step four, uh, we're going to talk about fines. In step five, uh, that's where the court determines whether restitution should be imposed. In step six, uh, we finally discuss departures. Um, I'll also have some examples to illustrate uh, how this works in real practice so that you get um, an idea of uh, how this dance uh, works, so to speak, uh, when you get to the sentencing stage of a defendant who's been convicted of a tax crime. So let's back up all the way to step one, where we determine the base offense level by reference to the tax loss numbers. Uh, basically, the guidelines produce a numerical score or offense level, and that uh, numerical score or offense level translates into a range of months of imprisonment. Um, the higher the offense level, the longer the sentence. Uh, the goal of defense counsel in plea negotiations or at sentencing is to obtain the lowest defense level possible because that will correspond to the fewest number of months. Now, when it comes to calculating a defendant's sentence, um, it's necessary for defense counsel to first select the applicable offense guideline section from Chapter 2 of the guidelines, and that would be the uh, section that corresponds to the crime committed. Now, Chapter 2 is organized by types of crimes, and then within Chapter 2, there are specific subchapters dedicated to broad classes of crimes. Um, because we're talking about tax crimes here, we want to get to the subchapter that relates directly to tax crimes. And um, the guidelines that are applicable to tax crimes in uh, Chapter 2 is Subchapter 2T, as in Tom. Now, once the applicable guidelines provision is uh, found, um, the base offense level is then calculated. For tax cases, the offense level is generally determined by what's called the tax loss number. Now, that, um, that is a loaded, loaded definition. Uh, but for our purposes, and to simplify it, what we're referring to by the tax loss number 
is the amount of loss that the taxpayer by his or her willful conduct attempted to evade. The tax loss number, so you understand um, how it's distinguish, uh, distinguishable from other um, tax loss numbers that um, are prevalent in the civil tax arena, the tax loss number is not how much revenue the government ultimately lost. Uh, the defense won't know that until after the civil trial. And because a civil trial won't start until after the criminal case has ended, neither side knows uh, the tax loss number at the time of sentencing. So if the government wins a civil case and is successful in collection, it won't lose any money. It'll be compensated uh, by interest and civil tax penalties for the delay in time. Um, at the end of the day, the government may not actually lose any money. The tax loss number is the amount that the taxpayer was attempting to prevent the government from getting. Um, so tax loss number is uh, used in the criminal realm. And um, as I said, it comes up quite often because it um, is basically used to, um, it's, it's basically uh, how the offense level is generally determined. Um, it's determined by the tax loss number. And once again, tax loss is the amount of loss that the taxpayer by his or her willful conduct attempted to evade. And um, it's not how much revenue the government ultimately lost. Um, once again, um, a determination of uh, what the government lost um, might be much greater than the tax loss number. And uh, we won't know how much the government ultimately lost until we get to the civil trial which um, generally comes after the criminal trial when it comes to a criminal tax case. Now, we're going to move along to step two. In step two, we adjust the offense level in light of specific offense characteristics. Now, specific offense characteristics uh, are contained in the particular guideline section um, that we're working with. Um, so because we're working in the tax guideline um, section, there will be specific offense characteristics um, contained that are specific to uh, tax. Each guidelines provision lists a certain conduct that the uh, commission believes made the conduct worse than the usual crime. Um, and that's the key word here, worse than the usual crime. If the defendant's conduct falls within these offense characteristics, the base offense level, um, unfortunately, um, is increased uh, by the points corresponding to that particular characteristic. So for tax cases, uh, the base offense level is increased by two points if the defendant failed to report income exceeding 10000 from a non-tax criminal activity in any year. And that's important to note. Um, there, there can be an increase in the base offense level uh, by two points if the defendant failed to report income exceeding ten thousand from a non-tax criminal activity in any year. So, how does this uh, work um, in real practice? 
what we would do is start with a tax loss number to get the base offense level, because remember the tax loss number um, is what uh, drives the base offense level. And then we would add or subtract specific offense characteristics which might uh, alter that. So here is uh, how adjustments to the offense level uh, work. Um, and there are, um, by my calculation here, um, one, two, uh, three steps um, for adjusting the offense level. The first step is that the sentencing level may be enhanced for obstruction of justice. And obstruction of justice uh, could, in, could lead to a two-level um, enhancement for um, the second um, the second adjustment to the offense level is what would be a four level enhancement um, if the defendant was found to be an organizer or leader of a criminal activity that involved five or more participants or um, the criminal activity was extensive um, so that would be the second way in a tax case that there could be an um, adjustment to the offense level. And then finally, the third way um, is actually a downward adjustment and not um, an upward adjustment, but a downward adjustment for acceptance of responsibility, which is oftentimes um, a uh, incentive um, for the defendant to uh, plead guilty rather than go to trial. And it's interesting um, how that can be a very uh, persuasive, um, a very persuasive uh, way of getting a defendant to plead guilty. The fact that acceptance of responsibility can result in a downward adjustment. And uh, that downward adjustment could, at the end of the day, be uh, the difference or mean the difference between um, a uh, one-month, two-month, three-month uh, period of incarceration or a period of home detention or probation. Uh, so that's why it's so important for defense counsel to be uh, well-versed in these uh, sentencing guidelines. So let's backtrack a little bit and talk about the, how the sentencing level can be enhanced for obstruction of justice. Um, there are some examples that I'm going to list here for you of conduct that normally results in an enhancement for obstruction of justice. Uh, there are a total of uh, four of them here. The first is threatening, intimidating, or otherwise unlawfully influencing a co-defendant, witness, or juror. The second um, example that uh, example of an obstruction enhancement is committing. Um, or attempting to suborn perjury. The third is producing or attempting to produce a false, altered, or counterfeit document. And the fourth example of a, an obstruction enhancement is destroying, concealing, or directing another person to destroy or conceal evidence that is material. Um, by material, what we're referring to here is significant. And um, it's material or significant or important to an official investigation. So those are the four examples of conduct that normally result in an, in an obstruction enhancement. 
Uh, courts uh, tend to refuse to apply the enhancement if the conduct was essential to one of the counts of conviction and increasing the sentence would be double counting. So to the extent that the conduct um, was a, an element or was, a, uh, was essential to the count that the defendant was convicted, it would not lead to an enhancement for obstruction of justice because it, um, it basically, um, it basically uh, falls within the crime itself that the defendant was convicted for. So to take that and treat it separately would almost be, um, it would be like double counting and it would be like punishing the defendant twice. Um, so an example, examples of conduct that result in an obstruction enhancement are uh, those that are separate and apart from the commission of the offense um, that the defendant was convicted of, not those that were essential uh, to the um, con- to the counts that or count that the defendant was convicted of. And um, I'll give you a quick and dirty example here. Um, you can distinguish obstruction that is part of the tax conduct itself from obstruction that is intended to cover up the tax conduct. So you can see here we're getting very nuanced. Um, let's say, for example, that the defendant was convicted of a Klein conspiracy uh, to defraud the IRS. Now, acts that are part of the conspiracy are part of the crime itself. And, of course, defense counsel doesn't want the same act to play into sentencing in two different ways. Uh, One is part of the offense itself, and second, as an adjustment to the offense level, because that would, you know, be devastating to the defendant in terms of, um, you know, uh, placing him or her in a higher level of the guidelines and potentially a higher um, sentence. So, uh, since a person convicted of a client conspiracy has necessarily engaged in obstructive conduct, that's the act, uh, the defense attorney's argument would be that it's inappropriate to increase the offense level for obstruction of justice after uh, the defendant had already been sentenced for conspiring to defraud the IRS. And that's, again, because um, the very act of conspiring to defraud the IRS um, includes uh, obstructive conduct. Uh, that's the act. So to, um, to parcel or chisel obstructive conduct out and treat it as an, um, and treat it as an enhancement um, to increase the base offense level would be um, unfair to the defendant. Now, as a way of comparing this, the court might still impose an obstruction of justice enhancement if it finds that the defendant testified and lied under oath. Why? Well, that's an obstruction that's separate and apart from the tax offense itself. Okay, um, getting on the stand and uh, perjuring oneself or testifying falsely or lying under oath is an obstruction that is different from 
the tax, uh, the, the tax offense itself. So therefore, uh, that obstruction would lead to a two-level enhancement. And again, what we're talking about here is enhancements to the offense level. Um, and in this case, um, you know, it could very well mean the difference between whether a defendant is going home on home detention or whether the defendant has to serve a little bit of time. Now, for uh, second, um, the second, the second adjustment to the offense level um, example is a four-level enhancement if the defendant was an organizer or leader of criminal activity that involved five or more participants, or um, this was a criminal activity that is deemed extensive. So here's a quick and dirty example to drive it home. Uh, let's say, for example, we're de dealing with a tax preparer um, who violated 72062 or sections 286 and 287 of the code. They could very well receive this enhancement if uh, they have at least one knowing participant and two, that they prepared many returns which are deemed equivalent to at least five knowing participants. I realize that that's a mouthful, um, but uh, suffice to say that there could be a four-level enhancement for a defendant who is an organizer or leader of a criminal activity that involved five or more participants or was otherwise extensive. And in this example that I gave you, it's a tax preparer um, who receives this enhancement because um, A, they have at least one knowing participant, and a B, um, they have prepared many returns which are deemed equivalent to at least five knowing participants. Now, the third example that I wanted to give to you for adjustments to the offense level um, isn't an enhancement, but instead it's a a departure, or not a departure, but what we would call a downward adjustment. Um, I'm sorry, a downward adjustment. Let's make that uh, very specific uh, because there is a, a huge difference between a downward adjustment and a departure, and I don't want to confuse you with the vocabulary. Um, so what we're talking about here is a downward adjustment for acceptance of responsibility. So overwhelmingly in the tax arena, when it comes to tax indictments, um, they're resolved by plea rather than trial. And that's because the government um, usually brings an ironclad, uh, rock-solid case. And uh, the proofs are so strong that it would be the equivalent of a long guilty plea for the defendant to go to trial. That's not to say that defendants charged with tax crimes don't go to trial. It's just um, to say that the cases brought are usually very strong and the evidence is usually overwhelming um, enough to induce a defendant to plead guilty. But there's also some other inducements that cause defendants to plead guilty. And that is this idea of a downward adjustment for acceptance of responsibility. So what are the factors that encourage a defendant to plead guilty? Uh, we've already mentioned one. The government has a rock-solid case, airtight case. And the second is a two- or three-level downward adjustment resulting from acceptance of responsibility. And the third inducement is that if a defendant loses a trial, 
he is no longer eligible for this downward adjustment. So the uh, idea here is that what we're trying to do is save um, time. Um, I realize that it's a little bit untoward um, and a little bit um, uh, leaves a bad taste in one's mouth to think that um, this that the spirit behind a two or three level downward adjustment is that uh, we're trying to conserve scarce judicial resources and save time um, and uh, keep the docket going. But at the end of the day, that is what the rationale um, is behind a two or three level downward adjustment resulting from acceptance of responsibility. And um, as I mentioned, this is not this downward adjustment is not available for defendants who go to trial and lose. So if a defendant uh, takes a gamble, rolls the dice, goes to trial, and ultimately is convicted of the tax crime, he or she can't uh, go back to the judge at the time of sentencing and say, I'll take that two or three level downward adjustment that um, the prosecutor uh, was willing to offer me um, before I went to trial. It's too late. Um, basically, if the defendant goes to trial, um, he makes his bed, and however the case, um, the, however the jury decides, is um, what uh, the defendant is bound by. Uh, so this two or three level downward adjustment is available for defendants who um, elect not to go to trial but to plead guilty. Um, so the adjustment is two levels if the offense level prior to adjustment is 14 or lower. The adjustment um, goes up to three levels if two conditions are met. First, the level is 16 or greater. And second, the defendant has assisted authorities in investigating or prosecuting his own misconduct by timely notifying authorities of his intention to plead guilty. So in tax cases, this means a defendant must enter a guilty plea before the trial date so that the government avoids expending significant resources. Now we're going to uh, jump to step three, which is calculating the sentence. Now the length of a defendant's sentence depends not only on the offense level, which if you remember from part one of this podcast is the vertical axis, but also the defendant's criminal history. And the criminal history is on the horizontal axis. So the defendant's criminal history must be determined under the guidelines. Where do we go in the guidelines to determine the defendant's criminal history? Well, that, assuming that the defendant does in fact have a criminal history, that is determined under chapter four of the guidelines. Um, the more prior convictions a defendant has, the higher his criminal history category. For most tax defendants, um, the count of conviction uh, or this count of conviction is usually their first offense. Uh, they have no prior um, indictable convictions, and that would put them in what's called criminal history category number one. Now that the uh, final offense level and the criminal history categories have been calculated, we can, um, we can actually uh, determine the actual sentence from the sentencing table. And the way we would do that is we would correlate the criminal history with the offense level um, and essentially look on this 
um, look on this uh, on on this chart and uh, find the intersection of the criminal history with offense level, and then we get what's called a recommended range. Uh, the guideline calculation results in a range of months of imprisonment. So just to give you a little bit of background about the sentencing table, it's divided into four zones, zone A through zone D. These zones limit the discretion of the sentencing judge when it comes to imposing a sentence other than a sentence of imprisonment. So just to give you some examples here, if the applicable guideline range is in zone A, um, a sentence of imprisonment is not required. So once again, if the applicable guideline range is in zone A, a sentence of imprisonment is not required, and any or all of the sentence can be served on what's called supervised release or home detention. Now, as a defense attorney, um, the goal is to get the client into zone A because, of course, that uh, prevents them from going to jail and serving any time. Well, how about zone B? In zone B, the sentence may be satisfied by a sentence of imprisonment or alternative confinement as long as one month of the sentence is satisfied by imprisonment. So there's a possibility of alternative confinement, meaning that um, the defendant um, be uh, placed on a home detention or supervised release uh, so long as at least one month of the sentence is satisfied by imprisonment. So if zone A is not possible for the convicted defendant, then the next, um, the next, uh, the next objective would be to try to get him or her in zone B. For zone C, at least one half of the minimum term must be satisfied by imprisonment. For zone D, all of the sentence must be satisfied by imprisonment. So uh, what we're trying to do is at all costs um, stay out of zone D because that is the most draconian of all of them. Zone C is nothing to write home about either because in zone C at least one half of the minimum term must be satisfied by imprisonment. Zone A is what we're after. Now moving on to step four, fines. I'm not going to talk too much about this, um, but a defendant sentence uh, for a tax crime may also include fines. Um, this is um, allowed uh, or permitted under 18 U.S.C. 3571. That provides for potential fines, including a fine of up to $250,000 uh, for an individual convicted of a felony and up to $500,000 for an organization. I should let you know that uh, those are the ceilings uh, for the fines. That doesn't mean that the fine is of $250,000 for an individual is automatically assessed um, if the defendant pleads guilty. Uh, usually the fine will be uh, substantially less than that. That, again, uh, only represents uh, the maximum. Moving on to step five, the court will determine whether restitution should be imposed. So in addition to incarceration and a fine, the guidelines allow the judge to order restitution. Uh, what is uh, restitution designed to do? It's designed to make the victim of the crime whole or to reimburse them.
So a, an example here would be one where uh, John embezzles from his employer. As part of his punishment, John has to make restitution to his employer for the embezzled amount. Restitution is only allowed where it is provided for by statute. Now, restitution is not statutorily authorized for a pure tax offense. Why? Well, in the tax context, the person that is cheated is the Department of Treasury, and the Treasury possesses extensive procedures for determining and collecting taxes independent of the criminal justice system, uh, usually after the criminal case is over. Um, that's not the same for a victim such as uh, John's employer. Uh, John's employer isn't the Department of Treasury and doesn't possess extensive procedures for determining um, and collecting taxes independent of the criminal justice system. So that's why uh, restitution is um, designed to reimburse uh, the victim. And uh, by victim, we're usually talking about a person or we're talking about a merchant. Uh, we might be talking um, when it comes to a street crime of uh, Target or ShopRite or um, some, uh, some um, business of that nature. Uh, but when it comes to uh, tax crime, the victim is the IRS, um, which is uh, under the Department of Treasury. And um, as I've already mentioned, and as we all know, they have incredible um, power to uh, determine and collect taxes um, independent of the criminal justice system. They have the levy, they have the lien, they have garnishments, um, and these are all available to them in um, the civil tax arena after the criminal case is over. And you bet they're going to uh, try to collect every dime of what is owed, um, including um, interest and um, penalties and civil penalties. So uh, that's why it's not uh, restitution is not statutorily authorized for a pure tax offense. Now, at the same time, this does not mean that restitution is never granted in criminal tax cases. Um, it, uh, it can be granted in criminal tax cases, but it's unusual. Uh, there are four situations in which a court may impose restitution in a criminal tax case. Uh, the first is one where the defense and the prosecutor agree to it, um, in which case the court can impose restitution up to the amount of the agreement. Uh, the second situation in which a court may impose restitution in a criminal tax case is if the defendant gets some benefit. Uh, for example, the defendant strikes a deal with the prosecutor for a lesser offense level in exchange for restitution. Uh, this is where the judge might say, I'll allow you to serve some or all of your sentence on supervised release if you make restitution. The third situation is one where non-tax charges are, um, are involved as well um, and not just tax charges. Uh, Non-tax charges are often included with tax charges, and restitution may be required under a non-tax statute. Uh, what are some of the non-tax charges that accompany tax charges in a federal indictment? Well, um, structuring um, is one of them. Uh, structuring deposits to avoid or evade the um, 
the reporting requirements. Uh, so for example, um, a $10,000 deposit uh, must be accompanied by a Form 8300. And um, in some cases, that's a form that a potential wrongdoer would rather not want to complete because uh, they don't want to draw attention to themselves, especially if the source of the money they're depositing comes from an illicit scheme. Um, and so, uh, because it's a form that a, uh, that a person um, involved in nefarious activity would rather not complete um, so as uh, to not bring attention to themselves, they might um, engage in what's called structuring. And structuring deposits means that the person is uh, depositing uh, cash into his or her account in amounts less than $10,000 so as not to trigger the reporting form, uh, the Form 8300. The problem is that, um, that by uh, depositing less than $10,000, um, that could be um, a crime of uh, structuring under the Bank Secrecy Act, and there is a federal criminal offense that punishes that conduct. Um, and so there very well could be some form of restitution involved in, um, in that conviction, and that um, offense may very well accompany um, the crime of tax evasion. Um, because um, it's very likely that a person engaged in structuring is not reporting the amount of cash that they are uh, depositing in sums of less than $10,000. Now, the fourth uh, situation which a court may impose restitution is if the defendant is someone other than the taxpayer. So, for example, under 72062, the person convicted is not the taxpayer himself, but instead the tax preparer who helped the taxpayer to improperly avoid taxes. Um, similarly, under uh, 7201, a person can be convicted for evading somebody else's taxes. And now finally, we are on step six, which is departures. The discretion to deviate from the guidelines is what's known as a departure. And the departure rules are contained in subparagraph 5K. A sentencing judge can depart upward from the, from the guidelines range if certain aggravate, aggravating factors exist. And that simply means that the sentencing judge can go higher than the recommended range. On the same token, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. A sentencing judge can depart downward if certain mitigating factors exist, and that means that the sentencing judge goes lower than the recommended range. It's important to note here that there are downward adjustments within the sentencing guidelines themselves, which we've discussed already, and we want to make a fine distinct distinction here between downward adjustments and a departure. Um, and then uh, so we have the situation where there are downward adjustments within the sentencing guidelines, and then there are times when the judge can go outside of the sentencing guidelines. What we're talking about here when it comes to departures is when the judge goes outside of the sentencing guidelines. 
Um, and so that second category where the judge goes outside the sentencing guidelines is what's called a departure. And that's what we're talking about now. We're not talking about the situation that we discussed earlier where there are downward adjustments within the sentencing guidelines themselves. So here's an example of a departure. Um, and here we have a mitigating factor the defendant has provided substantial assistance in the investigation or prosecution of another person who has committed an offense. Um, that could very well lead to a departure uh, where the judge goes outside of the sentencing guidelines because the defendant has provided substantial assistance in the investigation or prosecution of another person who has committed an offense. Now let's compare here. The substantial assistance departure, where the defendant has provided substantial assistance in the investigation or prosecution of another person, is different from the adjustment for acceptance of responsibility, where the defendant comes forward and um, accepts responsibility for committing the crime by pleading guilty uh, without um, putting the government's feet to the fire to prove their case and go through a long, drawn-out trial. So in the case of an adjustment for acceptance of responsibility, the sentencing judge looks at whether the defendant accepted full responsibility for his own conduct, and I stress own uh, conduct. The substantial assistance departure is available to defendants who help the government convict someone else. So that's the difference here. And it's very subtle, uh, but it's very important to understand this because this is what distinguishes an adjustment from a departure. Once again, in the case of an adjustment, uh, the sentencing judge looks at whether the defendant accepted full responsibility for his own conduct. And if he or she did, there would be what's called a downward adjustment. When it comes to a departure, uh, we're talking about um, substantial assistance um, being uh, given to the government by the defendant to help the government convict someone else. That's what would allow a judge to go outside of the sentencing guidelines and to um, sentence according to um, the departure rules contained in subparagraph Now that you understand the distinction a. between a departure and an adjustment, I want to um, just note that a defendant is not required to assist the government in order to qualify for the acceptance of responsibility adjustment. Um, so um, again, that's part and parcel of this distinction between a departure and an adjustment. A defendant is not required to assist the government in order to qualify for the acceptance of responsibility adjustment. It, that is, is, that's where a defendant accepts responsibility for his or her own conduct um, and not for the conduct of somebody else. It's only when the defendant seeks a departure for a substantial assistance that he or she must have assisted the government in um, the conviction of another person. Um, and, um, and so that's when that applies, but for purposes of, um, the acceptance of responsibility adjustment, it's merely the defendant stepping up to the plate and accepting responsibility for the crime that he or she is charged with.
Now, do tax crimes offer defendants the opportunity to provide substantial assistance to law enforcement so that they can take advantage of this basis for departure? That's probably um, the uh, chicken before the egg uh, issue uh, right there uh, because we've already delved into the weeds. Uh, while tax crimes often involve only one defendant, some crimes, uh, like large-scale crimes involved in abusive tax shelter schemes, those um, types of schemes offer defendants the opportunity to provide assistance in delivering up others. But um, as, a, as a practical matter, uh, no, tax crimes don't necessarily offer defendants the opportunity to provide substantial assistance to law enforcement so that they can take advantage of a departure. Uh, but again, um, there is always the uh, type of large-scale crime involving abusive tax shelters uh, that would allow the defendant the opportunity to uh, deliver up uh, another person and uh, perhaps take advantage of a departure. Um, let's talk about examples of substantial assistance um, authorizing a downward departure. Um, basically, um, again, we're going to um, talk in terms of abusive tax shelters. And um, in this example, the taxpayer is an investor in a tax shelter. Uh, the government is more interested in prosecuting the promoters of the shelter. And again, uh, we have a taxpayer who is an investor in a tax shelter. And for all intents and purposes, um, an investor may be considered to be a minnow as opposed to a whale. Um, the promoters of the shelter are the whales and the ones that the government uh, would love to sink their teeth into. So um, how does this stance work? Um, knowing that you're representing an investor in a tax shelter case, defense counsels uh, would attempt to obtain immunity for his or her client, assuming, of course, that uh, the client can um, provide information leading to the prosecution of a promoter of the shelter. So um, in furtherance of this objective for immunity, the defense counsel would say, I don't want um, John to be charged at all. I'll give you or will give you information on the other people, um, namely the promoters, if you give uh, John immunity. The government uh, would uh, come back by saying, we won't give you immunity. Um, John still has to plead guilty, but will agree to a lesser charge or a lower sentence in exchange for John's assistance in helping us get the promoters. Um, so that's typically how the dance works, where the defense attorney representing the investor or the minnow um, is trying to get him or her absolute immunity um, from being charged so that uh, there are no criminal charges and uh, no uh, convictions against his or her client. The government comes back by saying, no, we won't give you immunity. Um, your client will still have to plead guilty, but we'll allow him to uh, plead to a lesser charge and will agree to a lower sentence in exchange for John's assistance in helping us uh, get to uh, the promoter of this whole um, of this whole tax shelter scheme. Now, 
If defense counsel contemplates requ uh, requesting the sentencing court to make a downward departure, um, he should try to convince the prosecutor. Um, and the reason being is that the prosecutor um, toes or the prosecutor commands a lot of um, authority here. And to the extent that the prosecutor consents to it, it'll be um, that much easier to convince the judge to grant the departure. If the prosecutor objects to it at the time of sentencing, then it's going to be a harder fight to get the judge to order it. Um, so it's always best um, to get the prosecutor um, to consent to it um, before the client pleads guilty um, because in that case, uh, the judge would be more inclined to grant it. Um, and that's why um, you know, uh, it's so important um, at the time of plea negotiations to um, not overlook um, anything um, as it relates to downward departures because if it's overlooked and defense counsel raises it at the time of sentencing and the prosecutor objects, the court will be less likely to grant it.